Good morning. It's so good to be back with you. Though I have a confession, I'm a little nervous this morning because Jeff is back. And maybe he heard that I was spreading heresy and he's decided to come back. Um, but the truth is, Jeff's been here the last two weeks as well. Two weeks ago, at 6 a.m., before the service started, I got a text from Jeff saying, give him Jesus, praying for you and for, my, for the congregation. He loves you all a lot. And then the next week, on Saturday night, I got a, a text saying, uh, you know, asking if everything was ready for the service. Am I okay? Do I need anything? And, and that sort of stuff. So he's really been with us um, all four weeks, but uh, he's really here with us this week. And so I've got to admit, I'm a little more nervous than, than, than usual, but, uh, but delighted. The series that he asked me to be a part of with him is on the Beatitudes, as you know. And we've, we've spent the, for the last two weeks looking at the, the first two Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, that great sermon so long ago. And we're going to look today at another one. Um, and then Jeff will finish it up next week. Uh, just a look at this grand, amazing sermon given so long ago on the side of a hill that would, it'll change us. I think Jeff chose these passages because he knew I needed to look at them for my life. Um, and, um, and it's been really uh, amazing for me to kind of see these passages. Two other quick announcements, if I could. One, I apologize for the shameless plug about the book. It's just that it was from a, it was from a Sunday school class here. So I uh, just wanted to figure out a way to get to the people that helped put, listen to that material initially uh, to see if they could get that book. So apologize for that. As I was looking at this passage this week, I was reminded of, a, of, a, of something that happened in our lives about two and a half years ago. And I want to say this as, as kindly as possible. I want to honor my wife's mother who passed away two and a half years ago. But she was the East Coast distributor for guilt. I'm just saying. And uh, I'm not sure who's taken that franchise since she's gone. But um, um, I, was, I was asked to do her funeral. And in many ways, Mackie was a, was a good woman. She, she loved her kids and she sacrificed for them in many ways. She, uh, she worked hard and uh, in, in a hard life in many ways. The one thing about Mackie that, that made me think about this passage that we're going to look at together is there wasn't a lot of mercy in her life. And she kind of, she kind of kept offenses. I mean, she had lists of people that had harmed her and, and she kind of kept track of, of all the things that people had done against her. And ironically, when they asked me to do her funeral, I, I found her Bible and I started looking through it thinking, Maybe I could find something that I'll use in the, in the funeral that, that she wrote in her own hand. And ironically, um, what I found written in her own hand was something from the book of Amos. And if you know anything about the book of Amos, it's sometimes called the angry prophet. And I thought, how sadly fitting that someone who never really learned about mercy, somebody who struggled with forgiveness that the verses that they would scribble in their own handwriting in their Bible were from the angry prophet. I may be the only person in the history of funerals to do a funeral from the book of Amos, um, but, uh, but we tried. And, uh, and I was reminded of how sad it is to live our lives and never get a sense of the kind of mercy and grace that God would like to invite us to. And then I... 
Then I quit poking my finger at Mackie and realized that's how I live as well. And so this morning, I think Jesus would like to give you a a fresh sense of that, the kind of merciful God that he is. And I think from that sermon so long ago on the side of that hill, he turns it upside down and he says this amazing idea that if you want to be happy, if you want blessings, real happiness, real blessings, real joy, you've got to figure out mercy. Because if you don't figure out mercy, you won't experience mercy. And then he said something that all of us would, would hope for in our lives. He said that if you figure out this next beatitude, you'll see God. Now, how many of us like that idea? My goodness. Um, remember when you were a little boy or a little girl and you'd sit in your room and you'd say, God, if you're real, turn on the light. Remember the times when, when things are hard now in your life where you say, I hope that it's real. I hope that it's true. I hope that I know that it's true. I want it to be true. And the promise in the, in the Sermon on the Mount and this beatitude is if you seek him with, all, with, a, with a pure heart, you'll see him. My goodness, what, a, what an amazing promise that we find in this passage. So before we talk about him and before we look at his word together, let's talk to him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you so much for the privilege to be here. You know us and you know us well. You know that the most of us struggle with not being very merciful. We don't even know where to begin to think about a pure heart. So would you meet us here this morning? Would your spirit blow through here like a mighty wind? And would you change us? Would you meet us and change us? No one is here by accident this morning. You have brought us here. You've woven a story that would put all of us in this room at this time. And so now, would you teach us? Father, for the people in this room that are too comfortable, would you use this time to disrupt them? For the people that are disrupted, would you use this time to comfort them? We pray in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The passage, as you know, is taken from the book of Matthew. In chapter five, it says this, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. Then the passage for this morning Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then next week, Jeff will look at, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are all 
you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who went before you. This morning, let's think together about this idea of what does it mean to be merciful? Let me give you a working definition to start off with. Mercy is showing compassion or forgiveness towards someone within your power to punish or harm them. Showing compassion or forgiveness for somebody who has probably harmed you or harmed someone, that it's within your power to punish them. Now, why would Jesus... In this same book, the book of Matthew, in that amazing section in Matthew 9 where Matthew himself becomes converted. In that section on Matthew's conversion by saying, God doesn't want sacrifice, he wants mercy. Why would Matthew think that was so important for you and I to remember that? Well, maybe it's because Matthew needed forgiveness. Maybe it's because Matthew was a tax collector. And back then, a tax collector had a couple of problems. First of all, they worked for the Roman government, which was the occupying force. So they were a Jew working for the enemy. And second, often the way they made their money is to, to take more than they were supposed to and line their own pockets. And they were seen as... The worst of the worst. Matter of fact, throughout scripture, it'll say Jesus would eat with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, it was, it was put together in that way. It would be like, it, today it would be like he was with politicians and sinners. <laughs> just, just kidding. Maybe just a little. And so... Maybe Matthew wanted, when he heard those words and as God's inspiring him to, to write the God, his gospel, he's remembering the importance of the idea that it's not sacrifice, hard work that gets you through. It's God's mercy. Now, if you fall asleep and wake up at the end of this sermon, here's what I want you to know. Just in case. Not that I'm asking you to do that. But I want you to know that our definition of mercy, showing compassion or forgiveness towards someone with it's in your power to punish or harm, that's you getting mercy from God. At the end of the day, the reason that Jesus is talking about mercy and you getting the idea of mercy is because that will change everything. It's the essence of the gospel. See, we'd sell a cheaper gospel in religion, which is somehow separating the good guys from the bad guys. And then you begin to sacrifice a little bit if you're in the good guy category and you look at the people in the bad guy category and you say, and you get mad because you think God owes you. And you say, I'm kind of mad that they're doing better than me because I sacrificed more. 
listen to this. To the level that you sacrifice, if Christ doesn't intervene, is the level you'll feel entitled. You'll start feeling entitled the more you sacrifice because you'll start to think, I deserve it. I do more than other people. This week, my wife, who is just a good lady, uh, is sacrificing. She went to West Virginia to, to work with a, 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 a town that had been flooded out with a, with a group and took my daughter. And so that left me with Skylar, our son, by myself. And I'm not, to be honest with you, she's had a much harder week than me. Of course, I wouldn't tell her that. Please don't tell her that. Last night at 11.30, Skylar got on his phone, called Mona up in West Virginia and said, you've got to come quick. Dad is really missing you and he's real irritable. <laughs> the reason he said that is that I started kind of feeling entitled. You know, I've kind of sacrificed. I've kind of been doing a lot this week. I've been juggling my job and making sure my kid's okay. I started to feel like I'm, I'm deserving a little bit of, I felt a little entitled. And then when he didn't cooperate with me, I got mad at him. And then he called Mona, told on me, and we got it all worked out. <laughs> Don't you see, when you sacrifice for the sake of self, when you sacrifice so that God owes you, it's not real sacrifice. That's not what he wants. That's why he says, that's why Jesus says, oh, he's not, it's not sacrifice he wants. It's mercy. It's for you to understand the gospel of mercy. So, with that, what would it be like if we, this morning, stumbled toward believing that radical, scandalous truth? That, that on that hillside, Jesus was really serious when he said that, that you'd be happy if you understood mercy. And more than just happy, you would experience mercy. Well, let's think about mercies all through scripture because it's the very essence of the gospel. So there's so many places to talk about forgiveness and how we forgive and why we forgive and, and why we struggle with forgiveness. But I'd like to spend just a minute um, in, in a passage because I think it, it helps us understand this idea of, of compassion and forgiveness to someone that you had the authority to harm, but you chose not to. I do counseling for a living. I'm, I'm a psychologist. I work at RTS and I train trade counselors. And sitting in counseling office, a lot of times, one of the struggles is people just don't know how to forgive. They just hold on to things. I've had couples that have been married 25, 30 years that can tell me word for word the things they heard on their honeymoon that they have justified being protected from their partner for all these years. They've held on to their, to their anger. They've held on to their, their disappointment. They've and they've used that to justify their, their distance from one another. If you get married for, or if you join a church for any other reason than learning to forgive, you're probably going to be disappointed. 
But most of us don't know or do a very good job of forgiveness. Instead, we kind of just hold on to it. And so if we're going to understand mercy, we've got to understand forgiveness. And so I just thought we'd spend a minute in another passage, interestingly enough, in Matthew. You'd think that Matthew's concerned about this topic. I guess when you've been forgiven much, you appreciate much. It's found in Matthew 18. Peter asked Jesus a question. We're in the the 21st verse of chapter 18. It says this. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, let me stop for just a second and tell you how I think that played out. I think Peter was feeling pretty good about seven times. It's like, hey, Jesus, I'm a pretty forgiving guy. How many times do we have to forgive people? Seven? Like, that's enough, isn't it? Is it enough that I've forgiven my brother seven times? After all, um, he fished with his brothers. <laughs> his brother's right there. I mean, how many times? Give me a number, seven? I love Jesus' response. He ups him to a level that, and, and, and the legalists among us might start counting, getting out a checklist and say, okay, how many times I'm, I have to forgive here? I don't think that's the intent. I think the intent was Jesus answered in a way that says, Seven? No, no, no. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And then he tells a story. So listen to his story and let's see what we can learn about forgiveness. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts. As he began the settlement with his servants, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Just a side note that I think is kind of interesting. A lot of people will say, did Jesus ever use humor? And the answer is, you know, people go, well, of course not. He was Jesus. Um, He was in a bathrobe and sandals all the time. But I think... If you heard this in context that day, what you would have heard is there was a guy who owed a guabillion dollars. Because the idea here is that's more money than a person could have made, a peasant could have made in a lifetime. He was, Jesus was putting up an absurd argument. He was saying, let me tell you a story. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like someone who owed more than they could ever possibly pay back. And he gave this huge amount. And that's, where this, that's, that's how he starts the parable. The servant fell on his knees before him and said, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay everything back. Everyone in the crowd would have smirked and said, he can't pay that back, it's not possible. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Just a few, just a little bit of money. Not even a day's wages. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. 
but he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man throw him into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called to his servant, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers. They tortured him until he could pay back what he owed. Didn't I, shouldn't you? That's what the king in the parable said to the one who debt had been canceled. Didn't I forgive you and therefore shouldn't you? And the picture all of a sudden isn't absurd when, it's, when you realize we're that person. I have this incredible debt canceled. My moral failures, my attitude, my selfishness, my entitlement, all the things that I feel all the time, the debt I owe has been sacrificed, has been, been forgiven. See that biblical essence for forgiveness is you forgive because you have been forgiven. It's really funny. Some of the best writing on forgiveness right now in our culture is not being written by Christians, oddly enough. It's being written by psychologists. And you know why they think you should forgive? They think you should forgive because if you don't forgive, it'll mess up your life. They've looked at studies and they look at people that are bitter, a little bit like Mackie, Mona's mom. And they look at people like that and say, they weren't very happy because they just kept accounts. And they noticed that people with short accounts that didn't seem to to remember, that didn't seem to always be bringing back the failures of others. People that, that were gracious to others seemed to be much happier than others. And so these psychologists are saying, you should forgive. Again, not because of a godly understanding of, of forgiveness, but because if you don't, it'll mess up your life. And it is, it will. They're right about that. It's really interesting. The, uh, the psychologist Everett Worthington at the University of, Washington, uh, University of Virginia says that uh, the way you forgive, interestingly enough, his mother had been murdered. And, uh, and the reason that he wanted to study forgiveness is his struggle with forgiveness. And so he came up with an acronym of how you forgive people because he thought it was so important. And it starts out with, to the, you recall the events. You try to understand what happened from the other person's point of view. And then listen to this. He's stumbling right into Matthew 18. Recall a time when you were hurt and someone else had forgiven you. Remember when you were given the gift of forgiveness and offer that gift to this person who had wronged you. Dr. Robert Enright, who uh, wrote a book called Forgiveness is a Choice, their basic idea, the, the same idea as they're looking at forgiveness, says uh, that the first thing, you, after you uncover your, your anger and hostility and examine the unjust act, as you look at it honestly, uh, then 
realize when you have been forgiven and decide to forgive. Um, work on forgiving. Forgiving is a process. He doesn't say 77 times, but he says it's a process and it has to be done over and over again. Stumbling right into Matthew 18. Dr. Sonia Lomsberg said in her book, The How of Happiness, here's her prescription for how you learn to forgive. Appreciate being forgiven yourself. Reflect on a time when you were forgiven or seek forgiveness or that you sought forgiveness for a wrong that you've done. <laughs> it's amazing. They stumbled into the parable of the unmerciful servant. Because if you don't have mercy, you'll be a miserable human being. You'll battle with cynicism anger and entitlement and you'll and you'll develop a self-righteous religion that somehow has other people the bad guys and you're the good guys and you'll just draw the line and you'll just say it's basically your works that's making it work and that won't that that won't sustain the hard realities of life So we have Jesus telling everybody on that hillside, happy, blessed. You want to be happy? Be happy. Then be merciful. Because if you're not merciful, you won't taste mercy. Now that's not some sort of, um, I, I don't see that as a, some sort of thing that God will not forgive you or I think it's more of an experiential issue because we know that salvation is not earned. I think to the level that you know you have been loved, you will love. To the level that you know you've been forgiven, you'll forgive. To the level that you know that you matter, you'll let others matter. We are selfish beings. And it is our, that, and that's why we're reminded of how much we need him. We're reminded at the beginning of this passage that we, the beginning of the, the Beatitudes tells us that we are, um, that we're poor in spirit, that we have nothing. Why would he begin with that? Because if you been, begin with, you've got a bunch. You're so special. But if everybody's special, nobody's special. And God is saying you matter and that he makes you sacred because you've been forgiven much. And because of that forgiveness, you can show mercy. And if you show mercy to others, if you live a, a life of mercy toward others, not because you're good, not because you're so righteous, but because you're constantly aware of how much you have been given mercy, you'll taste it and mercy will be given to you because you will understand the gospel. You'll understand the gospel. You can't understand the gospel outside of mercy because he has been merciful to you and I. That's the gospel. 
That's what we sing about. That's why we meet. And on that hillside, that's why I invited people to be happy in him, to feel real joy. And the way that happens is, is be a merciful person. Offer compassion and forgiveness to people who you have authority over and could have harmed or punished if you wanted to. And if you live that way, you'll taste the sweet, sweet taste of mercy. Quickly, let's look at the other, the other verse as well. By the way, a quick side note. Forgiveness. You know who some people, when I say showing compassion or forgiveness towards someone within your power to punish and harm. Do you know who some of you, you know how we get this all twisted up? You know some of you, the person you don't forgive? These are you. Your own failures. Your own struggles. That sin that you continue to wrestle with that's never really gone away. The battle with cynicism. Some of you, because of the things that have happened to you, some of the some for things that you have done that you hold on to like a like an ace card, and you play it every time God says you're forgiven or invites you to begin to believe what is true of you as a child of God, and you pull out the ace card and say, Yeah, but I did this. Yeah, but I but this happened to me. Yeah, but I... See, some of you don't forgive other people. And that'll kill you. And quite frankly, it'll make you lonely and you'll die alone. But some of you don't forgive yourselves. And I'm not talking about some sort of humanistic sort of We've got to all forgive ourselves because we're all good. No way, no, I don't mean that at all. You forgive yourself not because you're good. You forgive yourself because you've already been forgiven. And so some of you live in a haunted life because you've never given mercy to yourself. Sitting among us are perfectionists and people that live under an incredible amount of pressure. There's people right next to you that, that live their lives with like, there's almost a gun to their head because they, they just can't forgive themselves. There's a drivenness. Oh, that's not a, that's not a godly drivenness. It's a, it's a drivenness driven by shame. And so in this incredible call, on the side of a mountain thousands of years ago when he says, you want to be happy? Be merciful. And then you'll taste mercy. That mercy is toward others. But that mercy is also to accept the mercy God has given you and to be merciful to yourself as well. Now, let's look at the other verse. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, and they shall see God. Man, 
I love the promise of this one. They will see God. Do you ever wrestle with doubt? Do you ever just say, I wonder if it's really true? I wonder if it's, and then most of us have a moment or two in our lives where we know that we know that it's true. And then we spend the rest of our lives kind of wondering a little bit. And so the promise here is if I come to God with a pure heart, I will see him. I will see him. And I will know that I know that it's true because I'll see him. Boy, that promise just makes me shake inside. Maybe it's because I'm such a doubter, but I, that promise is amazing to me. So, with the promise that I'm going to see him, let's think about what this idea of a pure heart could mean a lot of things. If you're kind of a legalist, you might say, well, that means I need to be pure and perfect. Except in context, that doesn't seem to fit here because he's just told us how we're not perfect. And then it's sandwiched in a section where the very next section talks about the idea that, um, that it's not good enough if you've heard me say, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I say that if you have lust in your heart for a woman, you've committed adultery. So it seems like this idea of having a pure heart is not, is not the idea that I'm not going to struggle or I'm not going to, I'm going to be somehow perfect because that clearly isn't what's taught in the rest of this passage. So what's this idea of have a pure heart? Now, I'm going to give you a couple suggestions of what that may mean. Some would look at something like 1 Timothy 1, 5, where it says, uh, when, where Paul is talking about uh, a pure heart and a sincere faith. That a, that a pure heart means that you have a sincere faith. Well, Cofield, that didn't help us. What does a sincere faith mean? Well, then in James it says, it puts pure heart with not being double-minded. And then Jesus said to love him with all of our heart and there's something about it that is pure affection. So I think it's not a call to perfection. I took my son Skylar yesterday to a Star Trek, the new Star Trek movie. Now, that doesn't mean much to y'all. But Skylar, because of his autism, he kind of gets things stuck in his head. And he loves science fiction. And he loves space. And he, we've got every Star Wars thing that's ever been made. We have got, we have got all the Starship Enterprises and he knows all the characters and, and it's just, it's just amazing. I mean, there's, there's, if, if I could ever sell that stuff, I'm, you know, I'm set for life. I and mean, we have more, I mean, he, and he's got shirts and with a little insignia on it. And he just thinks he loves those. He loves the characters. He loves the story. He loves the, the spaceships. He just loves it. 
And what I loved is watching him watch that movie. (laughs) We sat in the theater yesterday and I just watched him. And his, his eyes were just bugging out and he was just sitting on the edge of his seat and he was, he was watching the movie with a pure heart. Everything in him was alive and focused. I mean, he was just mesmerized by the movie and by the characters. So much so that that was last night. I said, son, what do you want to do tomorrow? He said, let's go back and see that Star Trek movie again. And I said, son, we've already seen it. He goes, I know. That was a pure heart. Because everything in him, his mind, his emotions, and his behavior, every bit of him was just in it. What does it mean to have a pure heart? A whole heart toward Christ. Because then you'll see him. Well, I'll tell you, I would suggest that people tend to either be thinkers, feelers, or doers. If you're following along, that's a triangle. I work at RTS. If we ever make a triangle, we get $50 extra. (laughs) And so uh, an angel just got its wings and I got $50. But here's what I've noticed. Really cognitive people like us, I mean, that's kind of our tradition, the kind of Presbyterian, real cognitive people, we're the thinkers. And we give God our minds. I'm going to study them. I listened to that Cofield. I'm I'm glad Jeff's going to come back and clear up some of his heresy. (laughs) I want to study that. He said I should write a psalm. I don't think I should write a psalm. That's the thinkers. And we do a pretty good job in our community of loving God with our minds. And you know what people who kind of love God with their minds tend to do? Find other people who love God with their minds and sit around and talk about God. But then there's people who are feelers. We, we kind of, they're, they're, they, they make us nervous. And they're talking about experiencing God all the time and feeling God. And and you know what they do? They find other people who feel about God and, and, and they're just feeling. And then we all know a few people, none of us like them, that are just the behaviors. I mean, they don't know why they believe what they do, but they, they just, by golly, I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to... I'm going to read the Bible every day because I'm supposed to do it. They're checklist in the world. And I mean, they're just following, just faithfully marking time. And you know what they tend to do? Find people like that. Sit around and talk about, let me hold you accountable. No, no, let me hold you accountable. No, here's your check sheet. Here's mine. And that's what they do. Hmm. I wonder if a pure heart, I wonder if a pure heart jumps into the, the presence of God 
both mind, emotion, and behavior. Skylar, <laughs> Skylar at Star Trek, his mind was in it. He knew the story. His emotions were in it. And I guarantee you his behavior was in it. We went to Acme Comic Store right after the movie to buy a action figure. I mean, that's behavior, isn't it? And I think the invitation of God, what does it mean? What does it mean to be blessed and to love God with a pure heart? I think it has something to do with with stumbling toward all of you. So for some of you, that means we'll go to practical things for the week. For some of you that are just thinkers, you need to pray that God would put you with some feelers this week. That God would put you with some people that, that might be more emotionally connected to their faith than you so they could stretch you. If you're an emotional person and that's kind of all your faith is, is and, and church for you is kind of getting kind of jacked up to kind of get you ready to get through the next week. Maybe God needs to put you with a, with a doer. Or if you're a thinker, you get the idea. Now, there's other ways to see this idea of a pure heart and others might disagree with my interpretation of it. But I, I've never seen much more than a, of a pure heart than what I saw yesterday watching that movie. That was a pure heart toward a movie. But he was all in. And the invitation, the invitation for you and I. You want to see God? You want to see him? Be all in. You know, I've, I've always thought that the book of Job has been, is, is taught poorly. And I realize that's a little bit arrogant for a psychologist to critique all the teaching on Job I've ever heard. But uh, here's how the book of Job is usually taught. Job lost everything. But in the end, he got it all back. Hallelujah. He got it all back. And that's what I tell you. When we get home to heaven, find Job. And my guess is he'll say, that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is at some point I said to God, my cognitive doesn't get it. I don't understand what you're doing. My, his behaving didn't quite get it. And he just threw himself at God and said, basically, I give up. And then what happened? God showed up. Now, he didn't say, oh, Job. And pat him on the head. He said, Job, where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when? But I don't think Job, when you meet him in heaven, will say, yeah, I got my stuff back. 
I don't think he'll say, yeah, God, when God spoke to me, he said nice things. I think what he'll say from that moment on, I knew that I knew it was true because I experienced God. God spoke to me. I saw God. And when Job threw himself at God with all that he had and all that he didn't have and all of his struggles and all of his questions and all of his doubt with a pure whole heart, he saw God. And I'll bet you what Job will tell you is the issue wasn't getting my junk back. The issue is from that day forward, I never doubted again. From that day forward, I knew that I knew that I knew that it was true and I could count on it. I could count on it when the nights were dark. I could count on it when I lost things. I could count on it when things didn't work right. I could count on it because I knew that I knew that it was true. And I believe that's the promise right here on that mountain so long ago. That Jesus is saying, you want to be happy? You want to see me? Throw yourself on me with your pure heart. Everything you have. Your mind. Your thinking. Your behaving. Your feeling. Your doubts. Your worries. Your fears. Throw those on me. Pure heart and you'll see God. Practically, what would I like you to do this week? Well, on the mercy side, when we sing this song at the end in just a few minutes, I want you to pray that God would give you a name or a situation or a person that you need to deal with forgiveness about. And then... This week, you don't have to contact that person necessarily. And remember, I'm not talking about an abusive situation. Nobody should ever use scripture to encourage somebody to be in an abusive situation where they're, you know, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about here. But I'm talking about, is there somebody you need to forgive? Is there something you're holding on to? Is there something on your short list you'll never let go of? If so... A God who's let go of so much, who had the right to punish you and harm you and chose to give you compassion and forgiveness is inviting you to remember his great act to you and considers you doing that for that person. It doesn't mean you let them harm you again. It doesn't mean you forget everything they ever did. It just means that you give up you're right to punish them or harm them, to make them pay. And you leave that to God who's been merciful to you. So that would be the application for, for that passage. The application for the wholehearted passage, the pure-hearted passage, would just be, be honest about whether you're a thinker, feeler, or doer. And if you are, consider finding some of the other parts of the triangle. Because you need those. And then consider giving all of that with your eyes wide open 
to him. And with your eyes wide open, sitting on the edge of your seat, the promise is that you'll taste mercy and you'll see God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this privilege to stand here each week where my friend Jeff stands is such a privilege. But it's just been a privilege to think about this passage as well. Father, we need your words on the side of that mountain fresh to us this day. The things that I've said that are of me today, if you'd let those be quickly forgotten. But the things about mercy and grace. Would you sear those in our souls? Father, would you have us be people who live by mercy and not by our performance? And Father, give us the courage to be as little children with pure hearts coming toward you. Give us the courage and the eyes to see you this week when you show up. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.